You are now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. We'll get into their story, how they ended up where they are now, the ups and downs, the twists and turns, and how they have navigated it all. And we like to touch on how it's up to us to claim our joy, to claim our worth, to claim our value, to claim our enoughness, everything. That it's not out there once I get here somewhere. It's up to us to claim it for ourselves. On today's episode, we have Dr. Adi Jaffe. I had his wife, Sophie, a dear friend of mine on as one of my first guests, and I'm so excited to talk to him. He is the author of a book called The Abstinence Myth and the founder of Ignited. He has one of the first online recovery programs, and his mission is really to help people break through from their addictions without shame or having to always go the path of complete abstinence. So he, you know, he's touching on some things that can activate some people, but I really, really, really love what he's up to. And I think it is so important. And um, he's had quite a story. So let's get into it. You still like get nervous every time you go to hit record where I'm like, am no. I forgetting something? I don't get nervous about what I'm going to say. I'm just oh. like, wait, is everything working? I checked. Yeah, I'm a little it's, OCD about it that. Seems I seems a little too easy. <laughs> Doesn't it? I'm like, the red light is on and the number is moving in red. We're good. Am I doing this right? It's been how many times, but I'm still like, <laughs> okay. Hi. You know, I'm about to say your name. Is it Adi? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a simple name, but it can make a pause. It messes everybody up. Yeah. All the time. All right. So I'm super excited to talk to you because I feel like your, sis- your wife feels like a sister to me mm. and I've known you through her for years, but we also have not really had much of a conversation besides on yeah. your podcast. Yeah, or other than like hanging out at home. Yeah. No, no, like, no, we haven't, we've never gone deep. Yeah. And as much as I know that you open up and share about your past and stuff, I still don't like know all the details. No, this would be fun. Your story. It was fun. This is why I love doing podcasts is because when we had you on the podcast, I learned things about you I'd never known. Yeah, I love it. That's what I was just saying to Sophie too. I was like, yeah, I'm like, I know people for like 10, 20 years and then I have these conversations and I'm like, I didn't know any of this about you. <laughs> totally. It's so great. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to start with what got you, you are a licensed, well, you're many things, but one of the things is- you're- I'm actually a, so I'm a licensed advanced drug and alcohol counselor is what I'm licensed as. Okay. I have a PhD in psychology. PhD. Is that also the same thing as a master's or is that a different term? So uh, I got two masters on the way to that PhD. Whoa. One from Cal State Long Beach, which was kind of like a requirement because I couldn't get into UCLA without the master's first. So I went to to Cal State Long Beach and got my master's in psychology there. I got a really good GPA and did really well in that program. So that allowed me to get into UCLA. And then on the way to a PhD program, anyway, you get a master's on the way to that PhD. Got so, it. So PhD is above, is beyond master's. Or basically. it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a penultimate degree. It's like the, the final degree that you can get in, um, in most of these academic So programs. you were very much into learning about. <laughs> I, was, I was in school a lot. It's kind of crazy when you think about how many years I spent in school. It was like, mm, totally. 20, like 20 years or something that I spent in school. And, you know, you said I'm very much about learning. I think I'm just very much about learning, not about anything in particular. I just love learning. And 
I always say to people, the thing I learn more than anything else in a PhD program is how to learn really well. Hmm. It's like how to study and research and understand something really, really deeply. That's really cool and I think really important. Something it's been I, fun. I noticed even like I was at a workshop this weekend and the leaders would be like, saying something that I was like, seemed like, you know, they'd be like, can you guys get that right? It was to a small group of people. And everybody was like, uh-huh. And I even felt like, yeah, it seems like I should get that. But I actually feel like I need deeper learning. So I would be like, and if mm. ever, most people there, you would think I would the, be the person that understood it the most. Because it was a lot about like mindset work and like deeper work. But yet I would be the person like, mm, I get it, but can you explain that deeper? Nice. <laughs> like, because I felt like, yeah, I think this makes sense. Or yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But like, why does it make sense? Right. I want to know more. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. And I like learning more and more and more even about things that I already know about. Because there's almost always a deeper level. Um, have you ever, you know what math fractals are? You know fractals? It's no. Like those I weird, mean, like, it sounds familiar, but no. They're those weird math shapes. Like if you see these digital drawings from math yeah, numbers uh -huh. and it's all these shades and it's kind of like these geometric patterns almost like paisley but just made out of like geometry like really really deep math um there's this thing about these i swear to god i'm getting to a point um these math fractals they're visual expressions of mathematical formulas okay and the amazing thing about them search this put a link on it somewhere in the <laughs> show notes people are going to freak out about this thing <laughs> The we will thing, have a link in the show notes. The thing about math fractals is that you, you can keep zooming in and there's always more fractals inside of them. Like it never ends. You can't, like on a picture, a regular picture, if you keep zooming in, you get to a pixel. And then in right. the end, you look at one piece of the picture and that's it. Yeah. Math fractals, which are like supposed to be an expression of our nature, um, you can always keep zooming in. And to me, that's the same thing about learning, right? Um, you never know everything about a topic, period. Even if you've been studying, you know, Malcolm Gladwell gives that 10,000 hour sort of limit as to when you're an expert in something. I think you can study something for 10,000 hours, 100,000 hours, and there's still more for you yeah. to learn. I love that learning. Yeah. That's, that was my experience with yoga. Mm. <laughs> right? In what way? Like, meaning, so I got into yoga. I was like, oh, this is so hard. I'm not flexible. Oh, my gosh, I keep getting better. I'm so committed to this. I love how it's changing my body and my mind. Once I was able to get to like in the advanced poses or be able to do even like, you know, warrior two felt really good in it. Then it's like, oh, but activate this muscle. Activate, yeah. like there was no end. Never. I'm like, no, look at me. I look perfect in the pose. But then there's more things to think about and do in the exact same pose, even in downward dog and child's pose, like in the basic poses. Sure. Like there was And then no when end. you get the physical part right, <laughs> it's about what's going on in your mind while yeah. <laughs> you're in the pose because you're still looking at everybody else oh, going like, my oh, my pose looks better than that yeah. person's, which now means you're in comparison. So how do you yeah. get out of comparison? Totally. And that's, so, I, love, I love that about life. So when you brought that up, that was like, oh, I'm going back to like years yeah. on the map that way, which I'm now like re-entering yoga mm. world and like oh man like i can't even like bend forward <laughs> i'm like warrior two yeah that not judging like myself for it but it's like back and they're like oh right this is funny to sure me. like totally anyway um so what inspired you though to start that learning about mm. psychology is that how the it brain was, yeah. works I mean, the way I got to psychology in the first place was I was a pre-med student in undergrad. My dad was a physician and I was always supposed to be a doctor. Was that you were told by him 
to be a doctor or that was you making up my father's a doctor i must be a doctor it was to that please I, him. it or, wasn't nobody told me i had to but it was upheld in my opinion is the best thing and i wanted to be the best thing and so being a physician was that i just really sucked at doing schoolwork and um i don't know if this is common knowledge or not but to get into medical school you have to have really good grades and i didn't because i never did homework so i went to college spent my first year as a pre-med student didn't go that well switched to uh from bio biology as my major to psychobio because i like the human mind connection to biology so i spent about a year in that major and then i realized eh, i might be a little too much biology in that psychology so then i switched to psychology which i thought my parents would freak out about but they didn't they, they said it made sense and so i got my bachelor's eventually in psychology and so that kind of became the track and i always was fascinated by the human mind but then as I don't know if we'll talk about it here or not, but um, I, I took a detour. Yeah, that detour, I was wondering where that came in your that life. That detour <laughs> really heavily started coming in my the end of my first year of college. I started using substances around the age of fourteen. And also, so did you? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Israel till I was fourteen, then Chicago for two years. And what brought you to Chicago? Did your family? My dad got a job, yeah. Okay. So your whole family was living in Israel and then your whole family moved to, to Chicago. Chicago. And we did two years, my first two years of high school in Chicago. And then we moved to upstate New York for my last two years of high school uh, for a suburb outside of Rochester, New York, which is really northern, western New York, all, by, all the way by Canada. Um, and so that's where I finished high school. So then... Is that mean you started to get into drugs once you moved to the United States? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, uh, I started drinking actually with other Israeli kids, but started drinking in a sleepaway camp at the age of 14. And the camp was in New Jersey, but I was living in Chicago at the time. And at that point, though, was that just like, okay, let's try this while we're with the funds? Like, I'm guessing at 14, you're just like, I think that same thing. I probably started drinking at that age. And it's just like, oh my gosh, let's. Here's my mom's like vodka. Let's try right. this. Oh, this is fun. Yeah, I um, I was socially anxious, and so when kids brought it out, it just felt like the right thing to do because everybody was doing it. And so more like, I'm doing this because they're doing it. Yeah, I wasn't gonna say no when somebody handed it to me. I wasn't particularly opposed to it, but I wasn't looking for drinking. Uh, but I was awkward and I was weird. And I mean, I mean, at least internally. I don't know if people saw that. Some, right. Some, depending on who I talk to, some people think I was and some people think I wasn't. But I you was really felt shy. like you were Yeah, I was really shy around girls. I didn't really know what to do. By the way, some of this is still true, by the way. I'm just married with kids, so I don't really care because I don't have to talk to other girls. It's really easy. Um, but I was weird and awkward and somebody was, uh, was passing around a handle of vodka. And I was going to say no because that would make me more weird and awkward. So I had a couple of sips and... 15, 20 minutes later, I felt really kind of nice and good and warm. I didn't care what other people thought about me all that much, which felt really good for somebody yeah. like me. So I drank more. And then when my, we went back to Chicago after that sleepaway camp, I realized my friends had been drinking for a little while, actually. Um, I was just never invited to those, those parties. And so now I was. And I drank, you know, on the weekends here and there. Nothing major. It wasn't that, that big of a problem. Yeah, it's like average, like same. That's like me. It's like it wasn't like, oh, I tasted it. And I must have it. It's like, oh, but oh, or somewhere you have it. Cool. I'll have some. Yeah. This is fun. But I wasn't like, let's get all that alcohol. No, no, no. no. Um, but I, but anytime it was around, I drank it. And then um, weed came in a couple of years later. And it was the same thing. Same. But by the time, and this could be friends, this could have been so many different things, but by the time I went to college, 
I was drinking and smoking pretty daily. Like I was, I was regularly using, again, other things in my family life were not going well. School was not going well. There were a lot of reasons why it made sense for me to just disappear into drugs and alcohol. But um, yeah, I became a pretty, right. I was a stoner and a heavy drinker in college, which is, you know, true of like 30, 40% of college students. Totally. I would be, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it's more than that. I yeah. feel like for many people, the experience of going away to college is, oh, right. I guess we're supposed to figure out what to do with the rest of our lives, but like, we're free. Let's party. Yeah. Like, which is a really fucked up system. So, do no, you swear on your? Uh, yeah. Hi. <laughs> that's a really, that's a really fucked up system. If you really think about it for a minute, there's no real prep for what it'd be like to not have the rules of your parents. So, you know, if you go if you go away to school, like not a commuter school, but if you go away to school, yeah. it's like phase 2.0 of life, but the only prep you ever had was movies. And the movies right. are not <laughs> exactly are about the studying. This is true. Because I even remember um, my older sister is four years older than me. So uh-huh. like I'm a freshman in high school. She's a freshman in college. And when she, for her first college that she went to was like, I don't remember, but it was basically like University of West. It was a major known as a party school. And I would go visit her there. And it was just like. What state was it in? I, oh, maybe it was in Ohio. Like I grew up in Ohio. So I don't know. Maybe it's Ohio University. OU. I think it's OU that she went to. She yeah. didn't graduate from there. That's why I think I'm <laughs> confused. But she only okay, went there it. for like two years. But I would visit there. Party, and it's just yeah. like party, 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 party. Yeah. So that's also like my experience. Sure. of what that kind of college was, which was why I specifically chose to not go to a college like that. Amazing. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I also like, I actually felt like I knew what I wanted to do. So the college I went to was a liberal arts and communications college that was in the middle of downtown Chicago. Mm. So I moved to a city. I'm not saying I didn't drink and like act out, but I actually was like, I was also a r- rare person that I knew what I wanted to do with my sure. life, <laughs> which was doing sound which i didn't even know what it was called but i pursued went to that school because they had a music business program Mm. and i knew i wanted to work in music and then realized there was a sound program and that's how i got into it so i very much i was working in my career and going to school and i would sometimes party with my college like school friends but i mostly was hanging out with the people that are already working in the career i was working in yeah so but i saw that college experience that a lot of people were having and a lot of all, you know, my peers went off and yep. had. I mean, that's half at least of what college was for me. But you, in that process, you, you ended up drinking and smoking pot almost daily, but you also did real, like, that's when you switched to psychology. So you were. Well, you know, it's a, that's an interesting point. It's, um, I feel like, and that, again, I'm, psychology is my major so i'm not putting it down but i feel like i kept choosing an easier easier way to get through college right so you started at like the highest of the high of what you thought and then okay maybe this maybe this and so psychology sort of happened for you it wasn't like wow i'm super inspired by how the brain works in this it just was like shh, kept being a step away from where you started yeah it was just like okay what's how can we make this a little bit easier and more fit more into my life and but once you were in those classes did you I love feel yeah, yeah i love psychology i love the field um there definitely hasn't been i mean now i could see now i'm kind of motivated by a bigger purpose a bigger goal so i i like studying anything that is involved with that uh, i mean i like statistics for crying out loud i'm always a math geek but i like statistics 
because they serve a purpose. So I think, you know, it's interesting. There's a difference between going to school because you have to get a degree and like what you just described, going to school because there's something you want to know how to do. Yeah. Like you went to school because you wanted a specific kind of career. And so it didn't really matter what the major was called or what you right. just wanted to learn how to do the thing you wanted to know how to do. And I only got a degree because my parents were like, you have to have a college degree. So I found a school that fit my needs. Were you always like that? How he's like, what? Where you knew what you wanted and then you just went after it. Yep. <laughs> you have to, I, for those of you who are uh, just listening and are not in the room with us right now, you have to scan around a little bit to, for the answer for that. Yeah, I was like looking around in my, my, in my mind. Because <laughs> that was not at all until like what I'll, I'll call a D phase 2.0. But I'm going to say like I think I was pausing because that doesn't mean it's always easy. Oh, of course. And no, it's no. still not. But yeah, I feel like I've always been some that felt things inside myself and would try to ignore them because why well, I don't know if this makes sense. Everybody else is doing this, that and be like, ah, I guess. I, gotta, I guess I got to listen to this voice. <laughs> mm, yeah. So, yeah, I think I always have been. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that was not my, that was not my story. And I, um, I got to college, like I said, just kind of drinking and smoking a lot of weed and just, just kind of enjoying the ride. I, there was no direction. And where was your first college experience? SUNY Buffalo. Okay, so you stayed upstate East New York. Coast. Uh, did that for two years, then transferred out to UCLA for uh, the rest of college. And where did the detour happen? So, end of that first year of college, I started getting into heavier drugs. Okay. Like we went from, I remember there was a friend's house uh, and I remember the summer between freshman and sophomore year. By that point, I'd had a really bad breakup. And um, and when I say bad breakup, I just mean my first really, really serious relationship, the one you think you're going to marry and and end up with for the rest of your life. And when like, that thing you ends. You felt things. Yeah. Like, and strongly, you're like, probably. And you're like, oh my God, my life is destroyed. That kind of breakup. And so I started experimenting with harder drugs. I remember my friend's house, we would party there all the time. And it went from a house where you would go and you'd drink and smoke a lot of weed to a house where you would drink, smoke weed, and do a lot of acid and mushrooms. And then the weed kind of left a little bit and the acid and mushrooms stayed, but then ecstasy got added. And then by the end of that summer, it all happened over like two to three months, we were all doing blow. And I remember the first time we did coke, like we didn't know anybody who did coke, he just knew somebody who sold it. And uh, by the end of that day, because we decided not to hide from all our friends we were doing it, we found out all our friends wanted to do coke. And in like a three-day period, it went from alcohol, weed, and like a little bit of hallucinogens to hardcore ecstasy coke and sometimes the hallucinogens. So I started trying the heavier drugs. And- it's not that that was the derailing by itself. That was just the my walk on the path to just not really caring much about what I did with my body and yeah. caring much more about, A, the momentary experience, not having a really good sense of short-term and long-term benefits, um, and really looking for things that made me feel good or at least okay because I didn't know how to do that myself. So it And you wouldn't know anything like- about that. It sounds like you, it wasn't like you're like looking for drugs. Let me try the, okay, like beer or I don't know what you're drinking, alcohol. Now we're doing pot. Like you and your friends are whatever, having fun on the weekends or maybe all day if it's a summer day or whatever. And then like, hey, somebody, I got this, I got that. So it's sort of like these things are available and somebody brings them in. But were you part of, of like 
I need something more or yeah, just that's how things were showing up. Yeah, I'll do it. It started just as part of the crowd. And then I kept trying to push the envelope. So you were one of the like, oh, what yeah. else can there be? Yeah, yeah. And, and that was like, you're feeling a certain way from doing this. I want more. I want to see what else is available to me. I think most of the time I didn't even know how other people felt from it. I just, um, I was looking for no, something. No, I mean you. Like, I, mm. all right. Like I I've never, I've never done coke this. before, obviously the first time yeah. I did it, but I wanted to see. Like I really, I romanticized the rolling up a dollar bill and like snorting cocaine up my nose. That that was really, that was a romantic notion in my head of how cool and, and yeah kind well, of out there and rebellious that was. Especially, Absolutely. I mean, like that stuff is like glamorized on movies and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So Even we, if it's like the death and end of someone or they did right. this and then their life got taken away, it still like looks like very like, well, it looks kind of cool. So we did it. We did it. And we, uh, I always, um, I always found ways to, other than heroin, I never did heroin yet, but um, notice that yet was in there because <laughs> um, life is not over yet, but. I um yeah no I definitely got to be one of the people who pushed the envelope sometimes really hard. Do you you know now with all of your knowledge and learning and stuff like that I was a lot around a lot of drugs. Oh, I'm sure. And alcohol the even in high drugs school. In the music industry? Oh, this was before in I was even oh, yeah. in the music industry. And I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. I went to an all-girls Catholic high school. Uh yep, for sure, dro- oh, yeah. drank pot. Or drank pot. You drank pot. <laughs> you know, it was, yeah, we're before, we were before the times. Uh, I drank whatever I could. Yeah. I remember like I would have competitions with myself. Like how much can I drink? So I would keep beer tabs in my back pocket. So the next day I could count them because I wouldn't remember. Because I was totally going to black out at some point. Oh, this is wow. before like digital phones. I took pictures and like the next week I get enveloped. Oh my God, I did that. I got that. So I like blacked out every time I drank. Regularly, cool, pot, but I never went beyond those two, but they were around. Mm. And when the only thing I can think that stopped me is because my dad's cousin, who I don't believe I ever met, died of a cocaine overdose when he was like 40 and and had kids. So I'd never met this person, but I remember hearing that news and that was so Mm. shocking to me. That some uh, an adult with a job and kids can die of a cocaine overdose, then sure. that, I'm not going there. Oh, that's so interesting. So I was always around cocaine. I then was like hung out with the hippie people that were doing ecstasy, and I would go to the raves with them because that was fun. But I never touched anything. Amazing. Beyond those, and I, I the only thing I can think is because of that one, like that. And cocaine for me was always like I would throughout many stages of my life would be like people doing cocaine and I was like everything of anything I would be in a bathroom stall with somebody shooting up heroin that didn't bother me as much as people snorting cocaine isn't it interesting how uh we just all have our versions of reality and kind of what seems within bounds and out of bounds for me it was heroin I would never stick a needle actually a needle I never never stuck a needle in my arm to do drugs Uh, my dad was a physician and so needles were for hospitals um so you feel like that's why you never crossed that never boundary? Never crossed. And never wanted or to. Or even because you can shoot up cocaine too, right? Meth. Yeah. You can yeah, shoot, you can shoot up cocaine and heroin, heroin and meth. I mean, you can mix them all together. Um, speed <laughs> balls. education and drugs. <laughs> I know. Speed balls. Um, yeah, it's, we all have our lines. And 
for me, the interesting question that comes from that is not why we all have our lines, because I think that's a clearer answer than why do we sometimes choose to cross them, right? Because a lot of kids grew up thinking cocaine is really bad or heroin is really bad. Like every, pretty much every heroin addict you've ever met, everybody addicted to opiates, grew up thinking being a heroin addict is a really terrible right. thing. They didn't aspire to be one. Yeah, and there was that stupid commercial. Remember that co- stupid <laughs> commercial in the 90s? Nobody ever says I want to be a drug addict when yeah. I grew up. Remember that one mm-hmm. with the kid oh, running yeah, around? Totally. So, yes, that's true, but that doesn't fucking tell me anything. Like, yeah. yeah, of course that's true. What What is interesting to me is not, because what they were trying to do with that commercial is, hey, 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 being a drug addict is bad. What they un- misunderstand is everybody's against heroin until the moment you decide you want to try heroin. And so I think the question we need to ask ourselves is not why do people do heroin? Because people do heroin because it makes them feel good and makes them overcome whatever else is going on in their life, et cetera. What's interesting is when does that switch? When do you go, because it happened to you for al- with alcohol, it happened to you with weed, cocaine it didn't happen with. But I wonder for you even, because you were against alcohol at some point, like drinking seemed like a bad idea. When you were like eight years old, nine Yeah, maybe. Years old. I'm like, oh, I'm like, no. I don't really. <laughs> but also my parents didn't really drink around me growing up too. So I don't think I even like Knew thought about was. alcohol. Yep. And then it was just there and I'm like, cool. Yeah. So to me, it's always really interesting. For me, it was very clear. For pot, for sure. That was like, that's bad. Yeah. You, hide, bad, like, you hide that. Yeah. So for me, it was uh, the question I started asking when I got out of all the drugs was, what happened? What made that seem okay? Because if you keep going down that path, and if you told me, you know, you've been in a room with people like shooting up dope. In a bathroom stall. It's not a sexy scene. No. There's nothing like exciting about it, but for the person who's doing it, it it has a purpose. Yeah. It serves a purpose. It's just that it took years for that purpose to become a thing. And so it it just becomes part of their story. And for me, it's always really interesting with all the people that I work with to understand what were all the little steps along the path because I almost look at it for what I do for a living. I have to help you trace that back. I almost have to help you find the person you were before you made that decision because the drugs were just the tool. What helps you overcome the addiction is understanding why you needed that tool in the first place and then go build the house you were looking to build with a different set of tools. That's interesting. And I was even, I, I have another question to ask you about that, but I also got to the point of like, so I didn't get into like drugs, but there were points where I both been like, nah, I don't really need pot. I, well, by the time I, t- I turned 21 and was like, then like, I don't really need to drink anymore. I mean, I drink now, but at the age of 21, I was living in Chicago. I'd convinced um, my mom to send me my sister's social security card so that I could get a Cal- an Illinois state ID that said I was 21 because I was like, I can't do anything uh, because I'm not 21 Being in Chicago. Yeah, sure. so, um, so I was admittable to bars. And by the time I turned 21, would go hang out with bars at bars after the show and did when I was doing sound concerts and was no longer interested in alcohol. Not always, but there were lots of months where I wasn't like, I'm sober. I'm this. I was just like, yeah, I don't really feel like drinking right now. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, I'm like, I still enjoy wine. Like, as I'm saying, like, I at, at the point of 21, at, at one point, stop. I haven't smoked weed in a long time because it like no longer is like, yeah, what? A-? So I guess at some point, I was like, whatever I was using it to escape from, you know, it's was funny. like, yeah, I don't really need that escape sure. anymore. And maybe you weren't escaping. Maybe when you were 14, 15, 16, you were just experimenting and having yeah. fun. This is one of the things that bothers me a little bit about the whole sober curious movement thing that's happening right now. 
is because what I see happening a lot is essentially people demonizing alcohol. Alcohol is not good. It's not bad. Alcohol is a thing. Yeah. Sober curious should be about people looking inward and understanding what they really want out of life. What are they not getting? And what is alcohol helping them pretend like they're okay with that they're not? Like, Mm. you probably know people to this day, right now, friends of yours in this moment, everybody listening probably knows somebody like this, who kind of fucking hates their life. They kind of despise it. But, you know, three quarters of a bottle of wine in over dinner, they don't mind it as much. Yeah. And so, they just drink three quarters of a bottle of wine, which is not that much. Three to four glasses. It's just three to four glasses of wine a night. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal. They just kind of need it all the time. Because if they don't have it, by the end of the day, they want to murder somebody. And I'm not being facetious right now. What I'm just saying is, in that equation, alcohol is not a problem. In that equation, what the fuck is making that person hate their life is the problem. Yeah. And so, I have no problem with the sober curious movement. I think like more and more people should see what it's like with less alcohol. The point is that I, that is weird to me right now is so many of the people who are on the forefront of that movement are like, you know, alcohol is a terrible thing. It's never helped anybody. Don't pretend like alcohol helps. And I get that because they're telling the truth, but it's a judgment-based kind of thing instead of saying, hey, look inward and understand what you really need because all alcohol is helping you do is cover that up. So I still like a glass of wine. I like drinking. I like enjoying it, but I don't even drink enough now to really cover it up. And Sophie and I for sure have conversations every once in a while where it seems like one of us is over-relying on an outside thing to make us feel okay about life. doesn't matter what that thing is, weed, alcohol, whatever, running, yoga, like whatever the thing is. Right. If, you're, if you're starting to do it to cover up, we've got problems. Got it. Um, and what exactly, you know, I've been hearing and seeing more about the sober curious movement and I don't fully under, hmm. so when I hear sober curious, that makes me think, Oh, let me get, be curious about I if I need to be sober, yeah. or if my life would be better sober. I think so that's it, I think that's true. I think that's kind of what the movement is. The idea was the only conversation about drinking or not drinking in the past was: Are you an alcoholic? Like, do you need to stop drinking because you right. drink too much? And the idea, and I think it's a wise idea. It's a, it's an offshoot. It's like a harm reduction piece, but only centered on alcohol. The sober curious movement. The idea being hey, do you ever think about maybe I should cut back? You know, um, it's not as open to cutting back, unfortunately. It's mostly open to trying to not drink anymore, which I also think is a, is a misstep. So, so when you, you're looking at Sober Curious and that you're saying that it's people being like, do I need to not drink? Whereas, yeah, and that's what I am confused about. Like, is it like, hmm, what's my relationship with... Drugs and alcohol. Am I yeah. leaning on it for like for me too? Because sometimes I'll just get in the routine of like, oh, I put the kids to bed, have a glass of wine, and then I have to ask myself like, wait, like, why am I? Why am I having, is it just because it's like routine? Because I was like, to me last oh, like I'm like, uh, sell or like I'm like being like, good job, Trisha. Right. You know, like is that? But like, actually, do I even like want this, or it's just become a habit? So like, is that, like so yeah? Because I when I too when I hear sober curious movement, it seems either like. Alcohol, yes, no. Not, what is my relationship with this? That's exactly what is happening. And I think I'm doing an interview tomorrow on another podcast that's kind of pushing the point a little bit of like, within Sober Curious, there's, you don't have to abstain. That's not, yeah. by the way, sober started out as the word that meant serious and even keeled and, and um, 
and responsible. Like sober as a judge, mm. right? As like somebody who's responsible, who is even okay. unbiased, responsible. Then alcohol became part of the definition. And, but even in the dictionary now, with alcohol being co-opted into sober, which is not what it started out meaning at all, it just meant serious, um, it says not drunk. Well, when I have a half a glass of wine, I'm not drunk. Right. I'm still sober, technically, according to yeah. the definition of sober. But and somehow- with a test. Yeah. Like, uh, exactly. <laughs> a blood alcohol test. So, the thing that bothers me a little bit is they've now co-opted sober as being fully absent yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's that black or white thing that you mentioned, which is kind of an American, I don't know, it's kind of like an American thing. Right. That it's all or nothing all yeah. the time. Um, and it's a little annoying because there, by the way, for people who don't know, a lot of Americans don't drink at all. Like 30 yeah. to 40% of Americans, if you ask them, have you had a drink in the last year? They'll say no. 30 to 40%. Most people don't know that. So 40% of Americans don't drink at all. There's another like 20 to 30% of Americans that barely drink. Yeah. A glass a week, two glasses, maybe up to three glasses a week for another 30%. That means only 20 to 30% of Americans are what you consider like regular drinkers. Right. And when you understand that, I think, I hope, it takes away a little bit of the pressure. Like, like you just said, am I drinking at night just because it fills up the time and it gives me like an activity to focus on? Do I want to be reading a book, really, instead of doing this? Or why am I doing it is a really good question to ask yourself. It became to me like it was like, and that's what, it'll just happen where it's like, oh, you know, I bought this bottle of wine and like, oh, I'm going to have a glass of wine Thursday. That felt good Friday. Like, so to me, I realized it was sort of like um, like a treat or like, especially like when Bodhi's gone on tour and it's like just mama running the house and running the business. Good job, Trisha. Like I said, it was more like a pat on the back. This is mm. part of my end of night wind down routine. It's mommy time. It's like, the wind down glass routine. Of I, wine. Like I might finish some like computer tasks. I might enjoy a book. I might. So it was like, and that. So it was part of, oh, and wine is part of, you're like, relax now, sure. Trisha. Like for me, it was like a pat on it's the back signal. thing. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, oh, you, you can relax now. That's interesting. I like that. Yeah, it's, um, Everybody but I don't had. actually need it every night. It just then got like attached. Like, oh, what if I had tea? <laughs> or like, what if I had- totally. What if I drank some calm and that made me fall asleep better? <laughs> yeah. Totally. Um, so going back to so when you're saying when you are working with clients and you're sort of like uncovering going back to, so like in your story, if you started like so young, are you able to track back to like that's at an age where like, yeah, you're, you know, you did, you must have this relationship with your father where you wanted to be like him or a doctor or something like that. I like, did, but I also really resented him. Um, he left us for a few days. He cheated on my mom and left us for a few days. And that was really, really tough and made me hate him. So that was a big one for us. Um, but also I was really so I was really socially anxious and awkward and I felt really weird around girls in particular. And alcohol solved that problem really easily. Right. And then the girl that I really liked in upstate New York was the one that gave me the joint. So I liked her. I wasn't oh, gonna say no. Yeah. And you know that actually that the thing of women and sex and how that plays into my substance use was a pretty big thing even later in life meaning like it would like give you confidence or yeah and even drug get you dealer. out of your own way so that you could be yeah like yeah and even like even becoming a drug dealer right like you have money and drugs around you more people want you around people also equal girls right girls get more free drugs than guys but um but like it created yep, i never paid for anything yeah but it created it created this like environment around me that helped me overcome my social anxiety without really overcoming my social anxiety because I didn't learn tools of how to communicate with people better. They just wanted to be around me more. 
the, then you probably needed the drugs and alcohol well, and substances high. more so then I you could be around those people time. more. <laughs> I was high all the time. Uh, I got more self-confidence through selling and using a lot of drugs because all of a sudden I had something people wanted and so they were kind of hanging out with me more and that made me realize that that's at least possible. But that was like a side effect of it. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Um, I think it's somebody vacuuming upstairs. Maybe, you can edit yeah. this out later. <laughs> that's fine. Um, okay, so you now are feeling like evaluating what started that, whatever. So then, yeah, what at what point? So you moved to LA. You are at UCLA studying yep. psychology. Yep. When you moved out here, did you know any? Because then that's also to I didn't me, know anybody. If you're into drugs and alcohol, you move to a new place. How do you find your um? I didn't know anybody. Substances. No, I didn't. So it was actually great. I uh, I went back to just drinking a little for months. All I did was drink, which again proves to me that point of everybody keeps focusing like there was something different about me as a human. It's a combination of everything. It's my experience, my psychology, my environment, and who I am. Um, and so it, kind, it was kind of all mixed together. But when I moved to LA, I didn't know anybody. And so I just drank, smoked cigarettes with people out in the, like the quad or whatever. Yeah. And then slowly but surely found like the people who looked for ecstasy and the people who looked for coke. And so it took months for that to kind of re, re-engage itself. And you, were, you weren't like, oh my gosh, I'm jonesing for Not that. It was just again, we're like, okay, I'm here. Okay, here's some alcohol. Yeah. That good. And then, oh, you guys got, okay, maybe I'll try, I'll do that. I think you. it was actually a girl again. <laughs> uh, it, it's all back to the girls. I dated this girl and she brought some ecstasy out and I hadn't done it since I was in Buffalo. And uh, like, hell yeah, let's do it. And then we started partying. And then where did the slippery like slope come in? So it's almost always around breakups for me. Sophie is not allowed to leave me, apparently. And also uh, at that point, you're managing your life. You're going to college, yeah, right? You're getting good grades. And then you also... Yeah. I um, So first big breakup was in upstate New York. That's where I pushed the envelope around the other drugs that I used. Then we're here. I'm with that girl. We're partying a lot. Now, I guess part of the slippery slope started because we were partying a lot. Ecstasy cost money, like a lot of money. It was $25 yeah. a pill back then. I didn't have... $25 a pill for two or three pills every weekend to do repeatedly. And then I it dawned on me, this is not a business tip, by the way, for people listening right now, don't start using this in everyday life. But um, it dawned on me that if I just collect everybody else's money and buy their pills for them, I'll get a cut. Um, so instead of $25 a pill, when I bought 10 or 20, it would be $20 a pill. So I would get mine and my girlfriend's for free. Got it. So you weren't like, you weren't at a drug deal at that point. You were just like, oh, let me, d- let me manage do this, this for everybody. And then I think I once asked my guy, one time I asked my guy, I was like, is there a point where you get a bigger discount? He was like, well, yeah, if you buy 50, I'll give them to you 15. And I was like, cha-ching. So then you got to find people to buy. So I found, actually, I had to literally borrow the money from a friend. I borrowed $750. I'll never forget this from a friend. I could buy 50 pills. Those 50 pills at $20 to $25 a pill translate to about $1,250. But I used some of them, so about $1,000 to $1,100. So every time I would collect 250 off the top, take his 750 that I borrowed, put it back in, and after three or four runs, I had my own 750 to be able to buy 700 to buy 50 pills. Um, and now I was making money off of it. Every round I was making like 250, 300 bucks, and I was broke. So 250, 300 dollars for a broke college kid is nice, especially when you get to get high in the meantime. And especially because it's also 
at that time, you started with a lot of people that already wanted it. So it's like you might have had to look for some other people to buy it, but it doesn't really seem like you don't have to look. you're getting into like some you're like, oh, all right, I'm just making this easier for everybody, including me. You don't have to look. Um, drug dealing, as long as you're willing to do the work, because the work is not as easy as people think it is. <laughs> but as long as you're willing to do that, and what I mean by that is people to hit you up whenever they want to, any time of the day, anywhere, they will come to your house and knock on your door, yeah. even if you didn't ask them to, even if you specifically told them not to. Yeah. <laughs> So as long as you're willing to do that, drug dealing is a really easy job. If you have stuff, people will buy it. So the moment I started buying 50 pills at a time, friends of friends started buying. And then when I started buying 100 pills at a time, friends of those friends would start buying. And then next thing you know, I'm buying four, 500, 1,000 pills at a time. And everybody knows more people. And now they can get the deals because now I have money to, to burn. So within about a year to two years, I had about 400, 500 customers. Wow. I was bringing in like, on really bad months, I was bringing in like ten, twenty thousand dollars a month myself. That's what you profit. Oh my god! And I still haven't finished college, so it was really nice. And by the way, I had so many drugs that I could get any girl I wanted. I was getting laid all the time. Like for a college kid who was weird and anxious before, yeah, this was like magic. But then the harder drugs came in, so. People started asking for the other stuff they wanted. Initially, it was just ecstasy. And so then they would ask for Coke or they would ask for meth. And um, I didn't even know what meth was, but I started getting it for them. And eventually, I started using it with them. And we got a lot of Coke. And then people asked for GHB and they asked for ketamine and they asked for all the other stuff that they wanted. I never sold weed, funnily enough, because I used to sell it when I was in upstate New York. And weed takes up a lot of space and smells. Yeah. And... I didn't want to be the guy lugging around like a half a pound of weed because yeah. you can tell that from the other side of a, yeah. the street. Um, and, you know, this is not today. It was highly illegal back yeah. then. And so I didn't touch weed. I touched all the other, harder stuff. But we were like the 7-Eleven of drugs. If you asked for something, we would get it for you. Are you living in the dorm at this time? No, by okay. that point, I'd... Uh, so I didn't graduate when I was supposed to graduate. So it's, I was at UCLA for two years. It was my third year. I was already off campus and totally removed that um, all the super heavy dealing was happening. And, um, and I lived with other friends who were in school still with me. But no, living off campus and just living the life, like living in Brentwood and it's really great apartment. <sighs> and also this time, again, you're still showing up to classes. Yeah, mm. I was showing up to tests. You're showing up to tests. I was showing so up to you're tests. like I was getting by. Pretty, I, was pretty, I was a pretty crappy student. That's where the meth really came in. It helped me study. Oh. That's the reason I even tried it in the first place. Um, but within six months to a year, I was hooked. Is that like you stay up? Like, what does meth do? I mean, a tw- I hate I hate saying this because I feel like people are gonna go, "Oh, I need that right now." Yeah, no. But like a twenty bag of meth when I started would keep me up for two to three days. Crazy. So for twenty dollars, I just didn't need to sleep for seventy two hours. Yeah, so I know a friend to- who drove across the country and like never stopped on meth. Like, I mean, stop to go to the bathroom, but like never went to sleep. Like, I mean, yeah. truckers. This is literally what truckers oh, Jesus. do. That's what truckers do. Is they took, if they're, if they're legal about it, it's a lot of Adderall. And if they're not, right. it's meth. Right. Because you just stay up. You don't need to sleep. It's insane. Um, and so, yeah, so I did that, really got into it. And, you know, you said slippery slope. And I think it's a good word for it. But to describe what it actually felt like is every move was very gradual, was very slight. Yeah. People ask me if I can get the meth. I got them a little bit of meth. It's a year later that I'm buying 10 pounds of meth at $10,000 each and, you know, distributing meth to hundreds and thousands of people. 
But initially it was like our raver friend asked if we can get him some and I got him like one gram of it and I made $50 yeah. off of it. And you also aren't sitting around like, what else can I make money from? People are coming to you. Okay, so it does seem very like, okay, not like I'm a master plan drug dealer now. It's like, no, I was okay, not well, let's see, okay. Very, like, very This isn't bad though. I can get this much money and this and that. So. Yeah, and when, you know, when people ask for more like, once I was getting thousands of pills, people would ask, can I buy a thousand pills? And I was like, well, if you buy my thousand, I have to go get more. And then you have to find somebody that can sell you more. And then it gets cheaper. So it just kept getting easier and easier and easier, to be honest. Wow. Yeah. But then you get held up at gunpoint and robbed, <laughs> which means you need to go get guns. Did that actually happen, oh, getting held yeah, up yeah. at gunpoint? My and place so- got broken into twice and a lot of shit stolen. And is and that because people didn't know he's the guy with the drugs? Or like, did you wrong anybody? Or just like, that guy's got drugs. Let's get his house. Yeah. I mean, people would, most of the time it was the latter. Like, there's a, there's a ground swell of people who just rob drug dealers. Because they also know that you can't call the cop. Right. So the first time it happened, I didn't, I wasn't and armed. if they're in the same place that you originally were, like I want to do drugs but I don't have the money for them. Yeah, I mean, there's Steal guys that drugs just make a career. Or become a drug dealer. Like. Exactly. There's, make, there's guys that make a career out of robbing drug dealers. And I see it, right? There's a niche. Um, <laughs> but so I got robbed twice. And then one time I got held up at gunpoint and they took everything. Because when they broke in, they didn't know where everything was hidden. When they actually had me at gunpoint, I told them where everything was hidden. So they got like, quarter million dollars worth of drugs and another like $150,000 of actual money and everything. They got everything. And, um, and that's when I got guns. Hey, it's me, Trisha, bringing you a brief interruption to make sure. Did you know that I have a daily inspiration app? Yeah, you can get it in the Google Play or the Apple App Store. It's, it's called Own Your Awesome. And it's hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations to get you out of your head and into the now, claiming your joy, your worth, empowerment, all of that. You can set a reminder so that every day you'll get a notification whatever time you want, 7 a.m., 1 p.m., 7 p.m., whatever you want. Get a notification to come to the app or you can come to it anytime you like. Pick a card. It's like a magical eight ball. ball. What message am I getting today? What I just got is care less about what they think, care more about what you think. Then you can hit show me a card, get new ones. You can swipe. You can easily share with friends or on social media. You can hit the love button, the little heart so that you have all your favorites saved up. There's even a journal inside. So you could journal about the card or just vent out whatever you're feeling, set intentions, what have you. I got another card I just got is practice gratitude for not just what you already have, but also for what you are calling in. See that it is already yours and be grateful that it's all working out. So there you go. Go to the app store, type in Own Your Awesome. It's only $3.99. That's like the price of a kombucha or a latte. It's a one-time price, no advertising, and I add new cards all the time. Let's get back to the episode. And that's when you got guns. So instead of you still and stayed in, yeah, but got guns. You yeah. got robbed, and you aren't thinking it's time to get I out. Got this. No, I got closer. I got closer to TV in the studio, outside and inside. Um, and I got guns. I got a shotgun, and I got a you know not a revolver, but um, pistol. Yeah, 
Okay, so now you have guns. Then, like, so what eventually makes you get out? I mean, the only thing that got me out was the SWAT team. The only thing that really got me out was uh, I got I got um, arrested in a bad way. I'd been arrested a handful of times before, but this was bad. The SWAT. So you were team, arrested before. Before this big arrest. And that, what were you arrested for? I got caught in Halloween in the car, uh, coming back with this girl in the car, and uh, they stopped us in Beverly Hills. And then they searched me. They found a bunch of drugs on me. And so they just put me in, in jail. So, like, enough to know that I wasn't just using, but either way, they probably would have stuck me in jail. Um, so that was one, one event. I got caught years earlier for stealing. I had another near arrest in Beverly Hills where other people in my car got arrested for carrying drugs. So it was just mostly like having drugs on you. Like you all weren't the time, out doing. All the time. Like in Beverly Hills at that time, I don't think they remember any of this now. But at the time, if anybody saw me driving in Beverly Hills, they would just pull me over. So I just avoided Beverly Hills. Like the cops just, just knew, knew to pull me over. Yeah. So what's the SWAT team? That's like they're coming to your house? Yeah, yeah. I, was, I lived in Brentwood. The Beverly Hills SWAT team, still good friends, uh, came to visit at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. And, um, and that was, I had already broken my leg in an accident. That's how they got me in the first place. And, um, and then they came and that was like the big hammer. And so that's, they have learned you have drugs. They're they know I'm a dealer. They know I probably know other dealers. They want to get me to talk. I won't. And we play that game for a little while. And then they come home and um, you know, get me when they know I won't be awake and find a bunch of drugs at home. I mean, thank God it wasn't everything, but a bunch and a bunch of money and yeah, and it just becomes it becomes a much much bigger deal. Seven hundred fifty thousand dollars in bail. I had a gun, um, and so. Now there's weapons charges. Now I'm a high risk person. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, and your family, I'm guessing, then has to learn about that. Yeah, they found out about my drug dealing at that arrest. Yeah. Up until that point, I was able to hide it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they got a call from my lawyer. I had a lawyer, thank God, uh, that I dealt with with some of the other charges. But this time it was big and they got all my money. So I had no way to pay them. I had money in a safe, safe deposit box in the bank, but I can't get to that from. Uh, from jail, so they had to call my mom. My mom hung up on my lawyer initially, saying you must have you have the, the wrong, wrong number. number, which shows a lot of denial on my parents' part because I was obviously not doing well. Um, but hung up on him. Then he called back. He's like, "No, no, no, your son is in jail for drug dealing. Uh, he's going away for a while. We we need help." And yeah, and they found out quickly. So did you go to jail? I ended up serving one year. You did serve one year. I did. I, I feel served. like I'm like. I served a year in LA Didn't County Jail, right down the street. Yeah. Um, I could have served 15, 16, 17, 18 years for yeah. everything they found. Um, we got them down to offer a three-year deal, and then the judge was nice enough, given the fact that I got sober and a lot of other things that I was doing in my life at the time, was nice enough to give me one year. That's after you're already in jail? And like, uh, no, 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 I was in rehab. Oh, so, okay, arrested. You get sent to rehab. Yeah. Um, since you're kind of saying, hey, you got to clean up your act or you're going to go away for a really, really long time. Do that for a year, then go to jail for a year. So now I'm sober for two years. And then I get out of jail and I start trying to get my life back together. What was your experience with rehab? Because I'm guessing at that point then, are you arrested? Are you like, oh, yeah, I fucked up. I need to change my life. Or are you like- Not yet. 
Not yet. Still, like, you're just, like, going through the motions. Yeah, I went to rehab because my lawyer told me that if I don't go to rehab, I'm going away for decades. Right. And I was like, oh, let's go to fucking rehab then. I'll do rehab over decades. So you're, like, doing the work, but, like, not really in it. Yeah, I was, I was going through the motions. I hadn't yet seen how I need it. Uh, it was the getting kicked out of that first rehab after being caught relapsing. And maybe more importantly, telling my dad the truth about that. So instead of lying to him about it and making up some story as to why I'm not in that rehab anymore, I ended up telling him the truth. And it was the first time that I owned up to what was really going on in my life instead of trying to cover up. And um, and that was a really big moment for me, you know, owning my shit. And Do you feel like you, can you remember why you at that time f- chose to own up to it? Were you just like The only thing that I can remember right now like- is, you know, when my parents found out everything, it was not a good time in my life, but there was also a lot of relief. That they knew that and they not knew like the I hiding. wasn't living a lie anymore. Yeah. And what had happened over those two months that I was using again in rehab before being caught was I was anxious and nervous and upset all day constantly. And I didn't really want that anymore. Yeah. Um, and so there were a lot of steps along the way. That was one of them was me recognizing in the middle of lying to my dad, I don't want to lie anymore. Let me just tell him the truth. They already know so much. Let me tell him the truth. There were a lot of other steps. I was still selling. But how, so when they send you, to, you get arrested and you go to rehab, which is this a different, this is rehab before SWAT team came nope, to get you? After. Or like, but so in my mind, they send you to rehab and then you don't go directly to jail? Um, how can so, you, you know, relapse? Court, court takes a long time in this country. Okay. And so the whole time court is going on, I'm out on bond. God, uh, you're so not like, like immediately sent to jail. Cause that's, I'm like, I don't even understand how you can relapse. And that's, by the way, one of the places where I'm really, Lucky, right? My family put five thousand dollars up for me to get out of jail. It was originally seventy five thousand, and Otherwise, I, and you I told have them not to. Otherwise, sitting. I would have been sitting there in jail the entire time this was going on, which is what happens to a lot of people that are. So before less you even privileged. get to jail, you go to rehab, relapse, go get back. out, go back to another rehab, um, and get my act together in that one. But again, even there, getting my act together took time. So in between those two relap- relapses, I um I used a lot in the middle. So I cleaned back up in that second one, but I was still selling because I was broke. I you don't know no like money, that. nothing. Nobody knew anything, and there was still a storage facility that had a lot of drugs in it. And so I would still sell only to like my best customers, people I knew would never snitch me out, and um, and getting some money out of it. And then trying to be honest, because that's what I I try to do in life in the last couple of decades or last dec- eighteen years or so. Um, I told my sponsor about it one day, and he was like, "You got to get rid of that stuff." And I was like. It was, it's hard to think about it out loud, but it was probably like a quarter million dollars worth of drugs that was just sitting in a storage facility. Um, I went with a girl that I was kind of seeing at the time. I told her the truth too. We dumped all of it. She went to the bathroom at a public storage and dumped like 70,000 ecstasy pills in the toilet. Oh my God. I'm just like, imagine like, what does that do to the the, the, the system? septic system? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I dumped, yeah, like a little wow. over a quarter million dollars. How did drugs. that feel? I'm guessing there's a lot of mixed up. emotions. <laughs> I wanted to throw up because I was flat broke. Yeah. Um, it was also a huge victory to know that I could do it. And the point is that after that, the temptation was gone. Yeah, I feel like so many things, but maybe like relief also that like this isn't hanging yeah. on you then even though you're like, in a shit place. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So jail for a year. Yeah, jail sucked. I'm sure. 
when you were in jail, were you able to be like, see the perspective? I mean, I can't even, I'm, are you mixed up with all sorts of people or? Yeah, yeah. So it, at first I was high risk because of the gun. Oh, wow. Um, and so I'm in like these three man cells that are not the highest, highest risk where they put you by yourself. But it kind of goes by, like the more people they put you in, the, the safer they feel about you, right? Got it. So three man cells are these small cells. They're about half the size of the room that we're sitting in right now. And they'll have like a bunk bed or two bunk beds. So sometimes there's one bed and then yeah. a bunk. Two, you know, two bunk beds means they could fit four people in there if they needed to. It's got a little bathroom in the corner. Um, and Did you get anything out of jail? Or were you just like still like not in the place that like, you know? No, I got one very important thing. And that is I never want to go to jail again. Okay. <laughs> That's why I was like, yeah, did you like learn some like life lessons there before you like get me out? No, no, there are definitely, jail is unlike any other experience. I can't even, that's, I'm like, I don't even know what to ask because it's like, I just don't even feel like it would express anything that. I mean, if you keep your dog in a, in like one of those animal cages. Yeah. uh, Those crates. Yeah, crate, there you go. If you keep your dog in a crate. All the time. That's kind of. Well, no, they let you out sometimes to shower and stuff. But that's sort of like what it feels like. It just, it's hard for us to fathom what that would really feel like. Yeah. But you become an animal. But like, so even in there though, like, are you thinking about like, shit, I don't want to get back in jail. So what am I going to do to change my life? What am I going to do differently? Or are you just like, I'm not going back to jail? Not yet. So I'm not going back to jail really only landed on me when I got out. But in jail, I was just focused on getting through jail. The lights never come off. Got it. Little riots happen here and there. You know, little fights. Like, you're just kind of trying to keep your head on straight and get out of there without, like, you know, a normal human being would just be crying all fucking day because you're like, what is happening? Look at my life right now. It's insane. It's insane. So, what does happen when you get out? So, I get out. And like I said, I knew at the time, I was like, I don't care if I have to clean toilets. I don't care what I have to do. Let's... Let's figure out what the next step Had is. Had you also at that point graduated from UCLA? So I got my bachelor's. Okay, before this In the this middle happened. of all that. In the okay. middle of like the dealing, yeah. Okay. Um, By the skin of my teeth, by the way. But so I get out. I'm like, okay, whatever I've got to do to not go back there. Let's go on the straight and narrow. I'm all in. I'm good. How do you even have a place to live? Do your parents help you my out? My parents help yeah. me out. Again, lucky the F. But, um, and then I start looking for jobs. And I went into malls and applied at restaurants i tried everything never got hired because that checkbox i had to check that checkbox have you ever been convicted of a felony yeah and most of you don't think about that box but once you've been convicted of a felony that box is all you care about like i was maybe i should register a website that damn box and everybody would know what the fuck i'm talking about and so you check that box i even i got there was an apple interview apple was opening up their second store in la it was like the beginning of apple store yeah. Everybody was really excited i was like oh my god let's go to work at the apple store so they're opening up the one in Santa Monica. I applied. I went through the first round of interviews. They really liked me. I was going to go in for a second one. And uh, because my professional audio experience, I had real a lot of Mac experience at the time. Right. So all pro audio. So I was looking to potentially work at the Genius Bar, all this stuff. Yeah. Go to the second training. Goes really, really well. And they say, okay, guys, um, we're going to email you the location of the store. We're going to do the in-store training. All, all that's left is just the background check. Now I had to write a whole thing about my background. So I even checked in with them at the end of that second uh, training. And they go, that's fine. Look, you wrote about the thing. They're drunk. Don't worry about it. Never heard back. 
Like uh, Apple took me off whatever list that was. They wouldn't reply to emails. Like somebody looked because it was serious. It was nine felonies with guns and stuff. It was not a not a good deal. Um, so I couldn't get a job. And after about six to nine months of trying that, my parents paying for rent wow. the entire time, which is a really long time yeah. to not be working and not using. So I was like, good, but not doing anything. Um, I decided we we're going to have to go back to school, which I didn't really want to do. But just you're like, nobody's hiring me. I guess I go back to school. Yep. In, but at that point, too, well, then you're not necessarily like, I'm so passionate about learning this. It's no. like. I just needed a thing to do. Yeah. So I applied to go back to school. I, I didn't even have everything I needed for my master's, but Cal State Long Beach let me take these couple of summer classes. And I got to say, going from being a drug dealer that can tell anybody to do anything whenever they want and somebody will do it because they want your drugs or money to just sitting in a class um, with a teacher who's giving you homework. It was a weird transition. Um, but, you know, it probably took me that summer or maybe a couple of months to just get used to it. And then I really liked school. Now I was motivated. I had a goal. Not just staying out of jail, but like getting something done with my life. And so I actually really, really liked school and became amazing at it. Like I had a 4.0 GPA through my master's. I didn't even get an A minus in anything. It was all A's. Um, and I did so well. I got scholarships that I didn't even apply to because I, I didn't know they existed. So that was nice because it covered my parents' costs of sending yeah. me to school. And then eventually I had an, my the beginning of my second year, end of my second year, sorry, end of my first year in that master's program. I got an advisor who gave me a job in their research lab, which meant I could now start making some money, and I got my first job after jail. Working, researching for- Research in hepatitis C and HIV, but with drug addicts. So oh. it was actually a really nice thing. That's, that's kind of how they described it. But um, there were primarily homeless people who were either addicted to drugs or just had drug use in their history. And the idea was to kind of study the relationship between all these factors. Now, at the time, I was still very, I looked at addiction very traditionally, and so they were addicts or alcoholics, and so that's kind of what the research was always focused on. Um, but through that work and the work I've done over the last, I don't know now, 10, 12, 13 years, my view on even what I was doing there really, really changed, And but I found a passion. Like, in that work, I found my passion. And what, it, what do you feel that passion was? Um, I wanted to understand why addiction happened was the first thing that caught me. Then once I felt like I really understood a good amount of that, I wanted to understand how to help people. And I thought I would maybe discover some new techniques on how to help people. And then what I realized was that we don't really need new techniques. We just need people to get the word out about the techniques we already understand because all that happens and not all that happens. At the time, a lot of what happened in treatment was just traditional 12-step work. Yeah. And there was so much more out there that we knew could help. And so then I became really committed to doing the getting out the word about what was new. And then eventually going and doing the help myself. Did you go to AA once you got out of jail? I went to AA before. I'm guess and I'm guessing in jail. No, there was no like, AA in jail. I mean, because I guess they're like, well, you can't have any. Well, I guess no, there you is can some have, stuff in there though, huh? No, you can have people make alcohol in jail. Right. I was like, wait, if Orange Is the New Black has any real, then I guess there are stuff. In no, 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 hundred percent. People sneak in pills, crack, uh, weed. Um, got it. Yeah, you would think they would Pruno. do work in there yeah yeah so uh no there can be there's times where they do meetings but i didn't do them at all i did it for about a year before jail and then a little bit after jail and then i left the program myself where did you when you were going because were you actually getting something out of it was it more like because i don't know what else to do and i should do this they say i, got, I mean i think this. both were true yeah. i got something out of it and i didn't know what else there was to do yeah so 
I'm guessing it did it also create like a community because then you left, you're the drug dealer, everybody you know is probably with drugs and then you need to stay away from that. So like what else happens? You get out of jail and you're looking for a job, but like who are your people? Yeah, so being having a sober community was really nice. Um, It got dogmatic at some point, but it was really, really nice to have people who didn't judge me. And no, but I also got a lot of, especially in grad school, I got a lot of normal friends. Right, but that's like- It took time. Until like, I'm talking about that six to nine months when you didn't have a job. Yeah. And then also- It was tough. So I had, actually, ironically, I had some friends that I'd met in jail. I was just still um, sober around them, but I had a couple of friends that I met in jail and I would hang out with them and their friends and um, who lived in like Hermosa, Manhattan Beach, like that area. Got it. So you had well. The The more well-off jail people. Yeah. And so then I'm guessing that's you did become a professor. Was that then wrapped up of like you finished, you got your professor gives me the research job. Is that then what happens to you becoming eventually a professor? Yeah. So I was a lecturer technically at UCLA, but I I lectured at UCLA and Cal State Long Beach, both the universities I went to. And for a long time, I taught neuroscience, addiction, statistics. And I had a blast. I mean, I love teaching. It was really, really great. Teaching the same class for seven years in a row gets kind of boring. That kind of sucks. But um, I love teaching. It was really, I love doing it. I love the staying around university. And in 2010, I graduated. So I did that, I think it's what, it's 2019 now. I think till 2018, 2017, I was still teaching. And I loved it. Um, but the whole time I was also either seeing clients or doing research on addiction or opening up a rehab or now with Ignited creating an entire platform to help people who struggle with mental health and addiction. Yeah. And that's what you, so like the creating the center and then how you work with clients now, what is that work? Like what you're describing before of like the uncovering. So I guess like, the, so who comes? Cause that's uh, like, yeah, it's the abstinence myth. Is that the name of the book too? The abstinence myth is the name of the book. Ignited is the name of the company, but the Ignited Hero program is the name of our addiction program. So is that, I don't know why I'm just having to explain, but like, so when I'm making this up that it's sort of like, yeah, people struggle with drug and alcohol, but maybe not everyone is an addict. Is that, or is it you figuring out the relationship with them? Is it trying to be not everybody has to be like we were talking about with a sober, curious black, white? Yeah. I mean, look, nobody really knows where that line to quote unquote addict happens. So I just like to toss the word to the side a little bit and say everybody's struggling and they want help. Some people are looking to quit. Other people are not looking to quit. Regardless of which of those two you want to do or are ready to do, there should be help offered to you. Yeah. And the unfortunate reality is that virtually all help right now is only offered to people who are willing and ready to quit. Yeah. And my whole thing is, and it's based on research I did at UCLA, a lot of people are not willing to quit. They're not ready. They're not there. And what we tell them is, well, come back when you are. I don't want to tell them to come back where they, right. where they are. I yeah, want to just totally. help them right now. And that's what I've seen in personal relationships and in other things that the people that struggle with their relationships to drug and alcohol, that most of the time they're not ready to quit, even if they know that they have a problem and that by you telling them that's not going to get them to quit by being forced into rehab and stuff like that, then that's probably not going to solve it and that there's going to be relapses and that, yeah, that a lot of people may think they realize that they have a problem with it or they but yeah, they can't imagine their life without it. So that it's regularly, I feel like that people do want to quit or it's like they only want to quit because they know it's messing up their life, but in some way, I don't know. 
Look, I mean, so I talk in the book about four factors that are important. It's biology, psychology, environment, and spirituality. And I think say they all little, matter. Say that again. Biology, psychology, environment, and spirituality. Right. Biology, your body and your machine. So psychology, some people are like There's a biological piece to it. Yeah, but so let me, let me kind of explain yeah. all the four factors. So biology is your actual machine, the, the cells that make up your body. Psychology is the experience you've had in life. Environment is what surrounds you, both biologically, is in the physical environment that you have, and social environment. And then spirituality, to me, is about a connection to something bigger, having a sense of purpose, belonging, uh, feeling like you matter, uh, maybe being connected to a higher power if that's part of your thing. Not my thing, but maybe for some people it is. So all four of those factors matter. And the reason I hate the term addict or alcoholic mm-hmm. or any of those is they assume that everybody who struggles with addiction have the same problem. Yeah. But they don't have the same problem. They have a mix of those four problems. And we all have different mixes. My biological predisposition was not incredibly strong. It exists, but it's not massive. My psychological traumatization earlier in life is not massive, but it exists. And you know, my dad leaving us when I was like eight, even for a few days was weird. My family not knowing how to talk about emotions didn't help me. So there's a psychology piece to that. And then there's the environment. I got into these environment where people offered me substances. I wouldn't have tried the substances if nobody offered them to me. Maybe I would have just been awkward and shy and anxious otherwise, but regardless. Yeah, like your life was getting better yes. in many ways because and, of these things. Yeah, and if you grow up in an environment where everybody around you smokes crack, then guess what? You're more likely to smoke crack. It's just simple. So environment matters. And stress, environmental stress matters a lot. And then, um, you know, a higher consciousness of some sort, which I'm calling spirituality, do you have a sense of purpose? Do you know why things matter? Are you connected to a bigger set of things than yourself? People come to me with a different mix of those four and treating all of them like they have the same issue is it's just not fair. It doesn't address their individuality. It's like me saying to everybody, well, you all need to be plumbers. Why? Because plumbers are always yeah. in need and there will always be, you know, if you're a plumber, everybody will always need a plumber. It's just an insane way of looking at the world. No, we understand I, yeah. it sounds crazy when I talk about addiction, but we also need to do the same thing with people that struggle with mental health. They have these factors. Stop talking to them like they're bipolar and talk to them like they're an individual right. who struggles with regulating totally. their emotions. Like you fit these boxes. So here is what will fix you, Here's, help you, sort yes. you. Like What we do for bipolar is this. Yeah. It's just like, and they feel and it. And that is the same as, oh, you have a, problem with this oh you're an this alcoholic is what you here's what alcoholics do to yeah. get better and then 90 percent of people tell us a i don't want to do that b it doesn't work for me and we say well you're in denial they're not in denial they're totally cognizant of what works and what doesn't work for them your thing doesn't work for them just give them another set of options yeah i love that and i'm guessing there must be people out in the world that are also trying to like do this and we just don't know about it because it's just like this kind of work hey this or are you like spearheading this. No, I mean, you know, I'm definitely not at the tip of the spear. So there are people that I'm following. Uh, I actually partnered up with one of those guys for um, the first treatment center that I ran, who was a, like a harm reduction psychologist. Um, and his name was Mark Kern. And there's a guy in New York, Andrew Tatarski, who I love and is a good friend to this day. Um, there's a guy down in San Diego, uh, Tom Horvath, who started, along with some other people, something called Smart Recovery, Self Management and Recovery Training, which is a secular psychology-based, CBT-based form of self-help uh, community, which is doing really, really what well. What is CBT-based? Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Oh, okay. And so Smart Recovery is amazing. Yeah, there are a lot of Alan Marlat who's passed. I, I never got to meet him, unfortunately, but he was a, an, a genius and 
and a trailblazer, Bill Miller. So there are people who like in the generation before me were doing yeah. this, you know, 40, 30, 40 years ago. But most people don't nobody know heard about anything them. Like about nobody it. heard about them in the in the general population, unfortunately. And part of what I'm trying to do using modern tools, none of those people use technology the way that I use it. None of those people use technology the way I hope Ignited will start yeah. using it pretty frequently here with um, the really smart kind of stuff that we can do with technology now to make it even better. Because I now offer maybe 60 to 70% of what we were able to offer at my rehab for the cost of somewhere between $10,000 a week to $5,000 a month for $97 a month because technology. That's why. Because of creating accessibility yeah. and scalability and it doesn't require my yeah. hours all the time. So that's what my goal is with the Ignited programs in general is to give access to really, really good advice for people who need help above a book because buying a book is nice and reading it is nice, but then you need more hand-holding. Yeah, and like actionable about it. Yeah, so then you go pay a therapist. But you know, like a therapist is a hundred and some dollars an appointment a minimum. And then you got to make an appointment, which means they have to have time. And then if like your appointment is on Thursday and something happened on Monday, what the yeah. fuck do you do? <laughs> You're like, okay, now yeah. I got to grin and bear it for three days. So I think technology is helping us solve those problems. So much. And that's why I think like so many people, just the awareness of like, oh, wait, what's this? And to like know about it and then be able to get there. Because yeah, I feel like for some people, all they know is, okay, so rehab AA. Yeah, exactly. That's all they know. And so- And they don't even think of what's the problem, why is the problem this? Maybe they'll see a therapist Well, if or something whatever, doesn't but- work, they think there's something wrong with them because these are the only options. So that's exactly yeah. my point is my point is to be one of the people who everybody understands pushes this other approach, not because it's the best approach, because it's a different approach that will appeal to some other people. And, and you're not had- saying no to this or that, but hey. I'm saying give people a menu. Just give them a menu. Tell them, hey, what do you like? What do you want to do? And once they can pick from that menu, they are more invested themselves. And look, people say to me, there's no way a just online program can help people. We've helped hundreds of people. So, and some of them have video testimonials online if you want to look them up. The book has been bought by thousands of people. I get emails and DMs from people all the time that say this has completely changed the way I live my life or the way I treat my loved one or from professionals saying, I now will start treating my clients differently. And that's the goal of all this work. And it's, you know, I'm so grateful that I get to use the history and the pain that I've gone through, the pain that my family went through. And then all the victories on the other side of that to help hopefully reduce the pain and improve the functioning of as many families and people as I possibly can. Our goal is a million right now. We'll see if we have to push that higher. <laughs> I love it. I love what you're up to. I really do. Mm, and like, thank you. I think it's so necessary. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, like, I know so many people. I've lost so many people. I'm sure. <laughs> addictions and yeah and i think there's so many people out there too like me that like you know what to tell somebody but they can't you can't do it for them no you can't and that's why to me the the important thing is we need to stop being dogmatic about this and just say things in whatever way they can hear it that makes them connect back because you know what nobody wants to be in that place it's not just nobody says i want to be a drug addict when i grow up even the people who are stuck in addiction they don't want to feel the way that they feel they just stop believing that there's a way out do you have any advice for how to talk? Like, so say I or somebody listening out there like knows somebody that's struggling and that is like such a challenging conversation to try to have that. I actually was talking to somebody today too of like, well, that was like, I know I need to have a conversation with this person. Mm. And I was like, what if you put in the conversation of not like you need to do this, but like, what do you think helps? Because I was like talking about other people like, 
think about me. I want this for like, I don't know, like how to try to break through. And I know it's going to be different for every person, but yeah, like to but try to get tips. into that step or even if somebody wants to buy this book or send the program to a friend, like how are they going to go about creating sure. that conversation? So there, there are definitely some tips. Um, first of all, stick to I, hey, I'm scared instead of you need to. Right. So I'm, I'm really scared. Yeah. It sticks to how you feel instead of telling somebody else how they should they're feel wrong, and what they do. They're wrong because their triggers are going to go off if you're telling me wrong, they shut down. Yeah. Exactly. So stick to I statements. You know, I just want to tell you, I'm, I'm anxious and I'm really worried and scared. Um, can we talk about it? And then like start there. Secondly, there's a reason why I call my book The Abstinence Myth. Um, if I was smarter about it, I probably would have called it You Don't Have to Get Sober. And people get mad about that. But the point is to catch people's fucking attention. Yeah. Um, and so I've had family members tell me, you know, I gave somebody the book. They never were willing to look at anything else, but they picked up your book. Why? Because what it says to them is you might not have to quit. Right. And they go, oh my God, what is this person talking about? And then they read. And the book talks about, you got to solve the problem, the deep problem. You got to go do some right. work. This is not easy shit. You're not going to get through this easily. But we can, we can solve this. Forget about the quitting drinking. Go fix what's wrong with your life. And guess what, people? If, if you're smart and you, you don't get triggered easily because the way, the way I'm talking about things scares you, if people start really focusing on what's wrong with their life, a lot of them either cut back or eliminate the yeah. drinking. But it's like, it's, like, it's like with a kid, right? Um, Sophie, when our kids went through a phase where they wouldn't drink smoothies anymore, mm -hmm. she got smart about it. She made them ice cream. You know what that ice cream was? Frozen smoothies. Yeah. Like, we're trying to save people's lives. This isn't about who's right and who's fucking wrong. And I'm sick of that argument because people argue with me about that every day. Yeah. We lose about 100,000 people a year to overdose. I don't give a fuck what you think about my program. Right. If it saves three people, it's worth the hate totally. I get from you. So how do you talk to those people in a way that opens up their minds? That's why I love harm reduction efforts. How do you connect to them so they start trusting you so that they can potentially get help? That's that's the goal. Yeah. And when you were just like putting that example out there of like somebody seeing the abstinence method book and then it's sort of been like, oh, okay, like you're telling me I don't have to quit. What I often feel in my own life when I give myself permission to do something, I don't always want it. But it's this idea of like, you're saying I can keep drinking? but let me look into this, then they might not end up wanting it. Like it's like, it's even 40. the funny thing with the wine I was talking yeah. about earlier, I'll get into this habit of it. And so then I'll like create half, oh, I got to create rules about it, right? So Trisha, no, you only drink Thursday, you know, like whatever. Yep. And so then there's a rule about it. And so then I'm like, oh, it's Thursday. It's the I night I told myself I can drink. Yep. But like, and there's something in me like, oh, you know what, Trisha? Like if it's a two, like, you know, or just like, there's this weird thing in my brain where I say, yeah, like it's whatever, Trisha. Like if have a drink tonight, then I'm sort of like, oh, actually I don't want one. Like, <laughs> like once you give yourself permission. But if I'm stuck in the like, I deserve one or it's the day I drink it or whatever, but I'm like, hey, yeah, what? Like, it's, it, it's called a limited choice problem sometimes in psychology. The idea that we want things more and we think they're worth more when we can't have them. Um, there was this really crazy study that was done um, in Florida there was this period where they outlawed, I think it was phosphorus-based detergents, a specific kind of detergent. Yeah. But they only outlawed it in one county. And so what the researchers did is they got ratings, how much people liked different um, laundry detergents before and after this law. And after the law went into effect, people started thinking that phosphorus-based um, laundry detergents, the ones they couldn't have anymore, cleaned better. And they liked them better and they wished they could have had them. People were driving across county lines yeah, to get sure. those other cleaners. Nobody cared before they made it illegal. Yeah. Once they made it illegal, everybody wanted them. And um, it's so 
crazy example to something that happens in our daily lives all the time. And so I completely agree. 40 to 50% of the people who come to me want to quit anyway. And then a good number of the other ones who didn't want to quit decide to quit later. That's not the point, people. Yeah. The point is somebody is asking you for help. Just go help them. Don't tell them, hey, I'll help you, but only if you're willing to do A, B, or C. Yeah. I love it. Okay. I'm going to get to, mm. I brought all my keychains and asking you which reminder you feel you want or need the most in your life right now. All right. I, I told you I'm going to do this to you beforehand. So we're going we're yeah. to do a little process of elimination thing here. Okay. He, he, ha- he had his eye on three and work out which one it is. <laughs> I, I know that the ones that are hardest for me are things like I'm badass, I'm magic. I'm enough. I'm probably good. Uh, um, Those are harder ones for and you. And everything to... is going my way. Mm. Those are probably my three hardest ones. I have a really hard time. I was realizing this earlier in a different interview that I was doing. I need to get over this quickly. Um, but I have a really hard time talking about myself like I'm great. It's like this humility that's been ingrained really, really heavily. Um, and even as I'm saying it right now, it feels like that's still the right thing. That it's the right thing to, to not have that talk humi- about. To not talk about the, your successes and how good you and are. And that might feel like you actually, off. inside, you feel good about yourself. You feel you're great, but you, you feel like you're not allowed to express that. Or it's wrong to. Is that what you're saying or no? You're, or it's you're also of, not allowed to feel it. It's a little bit it. of, um, <laughs> I don't ever feel like I'm really enough. Well, yeah. And so, I'm like, oh, yeah, I get, yeah, of course. We and so talking about out loud about how great I am or how I do great things mm-hmm. feels like a lie. Uh-huh. And I've been told you're not supposed to show off. So in, like, in multiple ways, even though I, I think we've done amazing things, it's really hard for me to get on the soapbox and just bang that drum yeah because it, it's is it either like well we've done great things and i'm not enough yet i haven't done enough yet i'm not enough yet or we've done great things but i don't want people to think that i'm a show off a show off so let's not talk about those things so that's why yeah it's, it's both i haven't yeah. and i'm 43 years old like i've <laughs> done i've done a lot i have a lot to do hopefully but i've done a lot um but just the idea that i'm enough um along with like the show offy part of it that I'm a badass, like I'm I'm better than enough because I'm a badass. Is I'm, I'm better than enough. Like I kick ass. Yeah, that's a really really hard one for me. So I am a badass feels harder for you to accept than I am enough. Yeah, yeah, right. And then, and then everything. Because, yeah, is, I am a badass feels a little bit boastful. Yeah, in some ways. Yeah, and also if I'm if I barely even feel like I'm enough, I definitely don't feel like I'm a badass. Like I have an image in my head of what a badass is. You know, like yeah. the cool kid, right. the people that you always knew that were like, and I don't feel like that. You know, what's funny as you're saying this, I have this funny smile on my face because I feel like I'm totally able to latch on to I'm a badass yep. at all times, but I am enough can still be a struggle. How funny is that? <laughs> yeah. It's all perspective, right? <laughs> I was like, whoa, yeah, because I'd be like, yeah, whatever, I'm totally a badass, but I don't know if I'm enough. That's funny. <laughs> to me, it's like, if if you're a badass, you must be enough. And exactly. Then, that's why I was like laughing as you were saying that. That's like, so funny. How my brain. Yeah. Like- and then even everything everything is going my way is another one that is really um really resonates as being something I need to hear all the time because I can land into what is a challenge very easily, but settling into even the challenges are good and 
and are part of my journey is a little harder. Yeah, everything is going my way is the one that I have on my keychains because it just feels like such a relief because it can be in like, you know, yeah, I'm, I can definitely struggle with my enoughness. I'm a badass. I know the only judge of me, whatever. Everything is going my way is because every day it can be like, oh, but this didn't happen yet or that or this is delayed or I didn't hear back about like, hey, everything's going my way. And I'm not like, I don't know. It's going my way, but I can't see it right now. There's stuff out there happening in the world. It hasn't shown up to me. Like, but hey, you know what? Everything's going my way. Like, it's just a nice phrase for me that like, whoosh, like yeah. takes the stress, swirls off. <laughs> like, see the good. I don't have a problem with it. Let that shit yeah. go. I uh, probably have a little bit of a problem with it. Not that big a problem. The only judge of me is me. I'm good. I'm really fucking grateful. Fuck the shoulds, do the wants. I don't do as many of the wants as I could, but I do a good amount of them. I'm pretty good at that. I'm here now. I'm definitely better at that nowadays. It's literally just like the self-ownership of worth. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do I feel like grabbing? I don't want it to be enough. <laughs> it feels like the hardest one for you to accept is an I'm a badass, so maybe you do need to look down and see that every day as you grab your keys. Yeah, I think that's going to be the one. Bam. All right. We picked it. I'm Personally, you're totally a fucking badass. <laughs> and I don't think anybody that knows you would doubt that for a second. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, what matters what's in our head, right? Yeah, totally. Okay. What is something you do to raise your joy levels? Like maybe you're just feeling off in your head and then you're going to go meet with a client. Or music. 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 Yeah. 100%. Point blank. It's all. I have a music playlist called Hyped. Yeah. And it's uh, it's like the shit that makes me just feel like I can break through that wall by just running, like yeah. that stuff. <laughs> awesome. That's what I do for uh, cool. to, to lift up. It's such an accessible thing. Yeah. Uh, I have this phrase. I asked everybody that was like <laughs> something that came up to me this year, which is like a total duh, but like, of course, like makes me assess everything in my life more is what is easiest for me is not always what is best for me. And so I ask everyone to figure out a way to apply that to their life right now. What is easiest for me is to, what is best for me, which it could be like, what is easiest for me is to not own how awesome I am. What is That's funny. Um, it could be applied to many things. For me, it's like, what is easiest for me is to stay in bed in the morning. What's best is that I get up and move my body before my kids wake up. Yeah, I kind of wish sometimes I could stay in bed more. Um, what is easiest for me right now is focusing on menial or really small technical jobs in my work to distract me and make me not pay attention to the bigger picture in my life and in my work. I'm nodding my head because I'm like, oh yeah, I get that. <laughs> so I'll, I'll focus on the really, really little shit to save myself from the bigger thinking. And it's that does not serve me at all. Totally. Yep. I call myself out on that on the regular like let me get into fixing this back end I'll, I'll just this. design this banner <laughs> i'm like oh, oh wait <laughs> yeah i get wrapped up in that all the time yep i love that because that speaks to me and like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh all right so there's this there's this book called the e-myth you should check it out the e-myth e-myth the oh. entrepreneurial myth oh okay um it talks about being the technician versus being the manager and the, and the business owner. Got it. Uh, all right. The last thing is the name of the podcast is Claim It, meaning that it's up to us to claim our worth, our value, mm. our enoughness. Like you just said, everybody else can believe you're a badass. But if you don't believe that about yourself, don't you're matter. not going to feel it no matter how many people will tell you. Yeah. What are you claiming right now? 
just in the world in general. Clef for yourself. What are you claiming for yourself? Um, sorry, can I ask for clarification? Um, like, so, a, like a I said, thing, a feeling. A- it could be anything. Like I said, it's like, oh, I'm claiming I'm enough. I'm claiming it a best. I'm claiming that I am owning who I am. Like, it can be a one word or it can be a vision for yourself. But like that thing of like, we have to give it to ourselves. Got so it. this is your opportunity to claim it. All right. Um, I'm claiming that I'm going to change the way people get self-help in the world. Love it. That's, that's my claim. I'm sticking to it. I love it. Yeah. And that even though that's sort of like about other people, then that means you are committed yeah, to, to that change. That change, which means you showing up for yourself and seeing that you are a badass and that you're enough because you're making these changes and you're committed it to for other people so that you are then. Yeah, and it's for all the other people. It's for my kids. Like, yeah. I, I need to figure out how to do things better so that my kids don't have to struggle with the same things I struggled and, you know, just leave it, leave the world a little better. Awesome. Thanks for sharing so much with me. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> Thanks for coming over. Yeah, and you can come to the Glow weekend. Oh, yeah, Ignite a Glow. We got Ignite a Glow in, and somebody's going to be there um, in like a month and a week. Holy crap. Um, We've got, I mean, you're you're going to be there with us. We've got some bad There's some, real, I'm super excited about, yeah, the Badass people. people. Three-day event, uh, October 18th through the 20th. In LA. In LA. It's going to be pure magic. You can't, you, you, you should go. Yeah. There'll be links here. I'll be, we'll be talking about it a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Super interesting story. And I really do think that what he is doing is amazing and that why not offer different ways to look at recovery? And as he said, that a lot of times they might end up choosing to stop completely, but this is a new way to open them up to try stopping. Uh, I'm going to have links right here. You can get his book, The Abstinent Myth, for free. So you can send it to someone that's struggling, get it for yourself. Um, You can also, he has a free training so those links will be in the notes to find him. He's Dr. Adi Jaffe on Instagram. And you can also find him at ignited.me as their Ignited podcast. And that's where his website is, ignited.com. That's I-G-N-T-D.com. Also, Adi and his wife, Sophie, my good friend, are having what's called the Glow Weekend in LA coming up very soon. And I'm going to be one of a ton of amazing speakers and panelists that are there. So make sure to go check out that. You can get a one or three day ticket. Link will be in the profile as well. You can hit bit.ly slash Trisha Glow to go right there. And um, yeah, of course, all things me, yourjoyologist.com. I'm at yourjoyologist. Thank you so much for listening. I really value hearing from you guys. So please share when you're listening. Tag me. Send me a message. Let me know what you're loving. Tell me critical feedback too. I'm open into growing and learning. And make sure to please subscribe rate and leave a review. That helps me to keep going. (laughs) And also it helps to get the podcast more visibility that more listeners can go start listening and start claiming their lives for themselves. And as a special gift, you can email me podcast at yourgeologist.com with the screenshot of your review. And I pick someone every week to pull 
a box full of goodies from my product line to ship to you. Yep, go to the product line, just like I have keychains, mugs, affirmation decks, journals, all sorts of products to empower you and inspire you. Thank you so much again for listening. Come hang out with me on Instagram. And what are you claiming for yourself right here in this moment? Claim it.